0: took the first plane from Amsterdam to Zurich, we had the coffee, quick chat, and he told me, you know what, go downtown, see whether you like this city, and if you like the city, you can come back, and we talk about research. In this episode, I'm talking to ETH alumna, chemist, and woman
1: leader, Margarita Fontana. She is Global Procurement Director of Strategic Planning and Governance at Dow Chemicals and has a PhD in Material Science from the ETH. She shares with us how ETH Zurich influenced her and continues to be important for her today. I'm Susan Kish, host of the We Are ETH podcast, telling the story of the alumni and friends of the ETH Zurich, the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology based in Zurich. ETH regularly ranks amongst the top universities in the world with cutting-edge research, science, and people. The people who were there, the people who are there, and the people who will be there. These are their stories. Margarita, welcome. Hi, Susan. Nice to be here with you. So let's start at the very beginning. It sounds like you grew up in Sicily
0: near Palermo. Is that right? Yes, south of Palermo, southwest. Uh, there is where I was born and raised and where I went to university. And then at a certain point, I think it was the third year of university, um, that city, though it's a big city and it's a big university, it felt like a bit too small. So I was curious to know how my fellow students in Europe were doing and what what were they studying? How were they studying? Mm-hmm. So that was the point where I just left the island, I left the family and went uh, to the Netherlands to discover uh, new fellow students. And that was really a fantastic opportunity. It was my first truly international experience. But then how did you get from the Netherlands to Switzerland and to the ETH? Uh, the reason why I, uh, I came to the ETH is because of that very first experience of going to Leiden, Leiden University, mm-hmm. um, where I did uh, my master's thesis. And once I finished the master's thesis, I was offered the opportunity to, uh, to join the industry. But back then, I didn't feel ready. I was like, you know, I just feel this strong need of learning. And I was curious about doing research and doing research in the polymer technology space and the materials pa- science space. So I was uh, Netscaping, was 97. I was learning to use the internet web search and use Netscape for those who remember Netscape. I remember that. <laughs> I was uh, typing polymer research, uh, polymer technology research. And the first two hits were one from ETH and the second from University of Grenoble. So I wrote to both professors. Uh, who turns out to be friends, by the way. (laughs) Good friends. And uh, I engaged in a conversation with Paul Smith, who was leading the Polymer uh, Technology Group here at the ETH, who um, invited me to just come over and have a conversation. So you got on a plane down to Zurich and you said you discovered the town, you looked at the view, you said, this is the place for me. Uh, pretty much so. Actually, it was Paul, Paul Smith, who invited me and I, I came here with all uh, um, ideas of which field I wanted to research and uh, I took the first plane from Amsterdam to Zurich. We had the coffee, quick chat, and he told me, you know what, go downtown, see whether you like this city, and if you like the city, you can come back and we talk about research. But if you don't like the city, that's fine. We will talk about research, but from a distance. So okay. That sounds like as an interesting person and team to hang out with So you walk down to the main the main train station and then just walk through the city. I walked down uh, from Central all the way to Bellevue and guess what It was a June morning sunny oh. beautiful day and I fell in love with the city so I was like if that's the first part of the test I think I, I made it So I went back I told Paul if it is for the city I'm all in. <laughs> (laughs) Um, and and then we went for lunch and then we started talking about research fantastic that is a great story and then after you went to the ETH you did your you got a PhD how long did that take you? It was almost four years and uh, one patent because we had to publish a patent uh, demonstrating that the research we were doing, it was actually something that we could apply, um, which was very, very interesting. It was was not an easy ride, but it was a a fantastic one. So um, it's been an experience that prepared me for the corporate world, although back then I could not recognize that but it was a a lot of learning uh, on how to uh, manage a project how to deal with an international team how to lead within that team and and the outcome was a wonderful one it was really one that prepared me for even the job i'm doing today and what was the topic of your thesis just as a, a side note yeah, it was uh, semiconducting uh, materials, but not conventional ones. Semiconducting materials are, are based on silicon material, yeah. and we were trying to do something which was a bit hybrid. We had an organic part and an inorganic part, so oh, with cool. unconventional precious metals. I was working with platinum, very, very noble. So after you completed your doctorate and got your PhD, if I understand correctly, then you decided to get an MBA. Uh, yeah, well, there was quite some years of experience in between. I went to okay. the industry because uh, back then I, I felt ready to work in the industry. So I worked for six years uh, in the industry. First thing with a technical uh, job, uh, really leading uh, uh, an advanced materials lab where we, we were lucky enough I was continuing a bit of the research that I was doing at the ETH. That was my entry point into the corporate world. Mm-hmm. And then I moved more towards uh, innovation uh, management and uh, new new ventures. So really still working in the innovation space, but more from a, a to a managerial uh, angle. And then I decided, okay. I, I'm ready to again continue learning. Um, mm-hmm. Was ready to move on, do a different job, but I didn't feel equipped to move more towards the commercial side of of the of the house, so to say. Yeah, and then I pursued the MBA at uh, INSEAD, which has been another life changing experience. I can imagine, and it sounds like you had to make that decision right in the midst of the financial crisis. It was exactly on the 15th of September, 2008, the day Lehman Brothers (laughs) declared bankruptcy. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, you know, back then I had to go to my uh, second level was the CTO of the company to convince him to endorse me the time to go back to school. And obviously the reaction of of, of that person, who, by the way, is an ETH alumni, told me, "Uh, Margita, but why now? (laughs) <laughs> Why do you want to go back to, to school? We were in the middle of an acquisition of our company by a bigger company. Huh. And they told me, no, just stay put, see what happens. And then we take it from there. And I told him, Martin, I actually, just because all these things are happening at the same time, I really feel the urge to go back to school. And um, he supported me. One week later, I was on a train to Paris. Fantastic. And INSEAD is
1: such a well-renowned and well-regarded school for an MBA. What was the difference? What were the key differences between getting your MBA at the NCIAD and doing that PhD at the ETH? How would you summarize sort of the top differences
0: between those institutions and those kinds of programs? I think uh, coming at ETH was really coming to a school of a different level. So you, you have to develop um, the competencies, but also the discipline of delivering on your uh, mandate, which for me was my PhD, right? With, with all the project work, with all the complexity uh, to manage that equipped me to go to INSEAD. When I reached INSEAD, although when I arrived, I thought it was like the person with the least experience and the least to offer to the audience. I felt very, very small among the crowd. Uh-huh. I just realized that Actually, what the ETH had given me was something of a unique value proposition that many of my fellow at INSEAD they did not have. Actually, I was the among the only two uh, students with a PhD from a technical school. Mm-hmm. So it turned out that uh, probably without ETH, I would not have be been very well equipped to go to INSEAD. So you're able to hold your own with the bankers and the McKinsey
1: consultants and uh, uh, other <laughs> peers within those classes. <laughs>
0: Yes, no on day one because on day one I did not feel that confidence. But day two I was on my feet. Yeah, <laughs> that's,
1: that's a quick recovery. Back in the day, you used to have to fill in those forms when you fly into London. That said, what is your profession? What would you have filled in? Are you a chemist? Are you a material scientist? Are you an innovator? What What do you fill in today?
0: You know. I, I still today, I'm a chemist. I'm a chemist. And for me, that means experimenting, that means researching, that means learning and discovering. So however you want to put a label, I'm a chemist. I'm a scientist at heart. Very cool. One of the things that I noticed in your work
1: at Dow, which is where you are, your day job now, is you're involved in areas such as the Women's Inclusion Network. Can you talk about how you got engaged
0: in that? What it's about? Yes, it's, it's a global employee network, um, which is one of the biggest for the company, probably one of the oldest, and with the mission of creating equality, driving equality from the shop floor all the way to the boardroom. Oh. The reason why I got involved is it's a very simple one. When I joined Dow. I didn't feel included at first. Although I was coming in with a PhD into a company who is a polymer science and material science company, Mm -hmm. people were reminding me that I was a newcomer and probably I wouldn't last long in the company. That was like more than 12 years ago. And I thought, you know what? I have a choice. Either I prove everyone wrong or I leave. So before I leave, let me try to see whether I can prove everyone around me wrong. And... um, I actually did. And that's the reason why I'm still with Dow. Because I started driving the changes from my chair, from where I was sitting. Start engaging in conversation, raising awareness about what the real issue was. And what the great opportunity, uh, business opportunity ahead of us was. And now I can proudly say that, you know, not now it's mainstream. But back then it was not mainstream. And um, there's been a fantastic uh, leadership development opportunity next to all the jobs that I have done that I can only recommend everybody to step in and embrace. So what do you see as the big differences that
1: you've seen at DAO over those 12 years as regards this question of the role of women
0: and in inclusion? Well, first and foremost, the tone of the engagement, starting from from the top and uh, percolating down throughout the organization, and now uh, moving towards one of the hardest core for the company. I, I believe of any manufacturing company, which is really the manufacturing and operation part of the organization, where already by by default people are not engaged as in other part of the organization because it's easy to communicate when people are behind the screen or within the same office. But when you have to explain equality and inclusion to a shift workers, it requires a bit more of a reach out and creativity. Mm-hmm. So um, that engagement but the awareness that we have to be a company that allows everyone to feel included and uh, feel themselves. It's a completely different culture shift, I would say mindset shift, uh, versus 12 years ago. I'm going to
1: bring this back to your time at ETH. Were there a lot of women in chemistry and material science when you were there? Did, was this a question at that time? That would be what, 99,
0: 1999, I, when you started there? I wish. I mean, <laughs> I <laughs> wish. Having been involved in WIN and DAO has actually been also like an opportunity to look myself in the mirror. Mm -hmm. Thinking back where I started, I mean, when I started to study chemistry in Italy in Palermo, we were only six women in a class of 95 Mm students. And then the ETH um, was not much different, I have to say. And I wish back then I could have more women role models around me to look up to. I mean, there were quite few, but not as many as I would have wished, I can say now. Let's talk about what your
1: day job is. I understand you're responsible for strategic sourcing and procurement to pay across EMEAI, which I have to say I don't I don't recognize that abbreviation. EMEA is Europe, Middle East, Africa.
0: So what's the I? India. India. Ah. So what is that job? So I have a dual role. I mean, first and foremost, I was, uh, this is probably the first job I never actively seek or apply for. I was, it's the first job I was asked and proposed to step into. That's cool. That's a real compliment. It's a fantastic opportunity because procurement was never on my radar screen. I worked in the technical job, marketing, sales, um, and the procurement was like, okay, yeah, i um, I know what it is but it's not where i want to be and i have to say having been given the opportunity ahead of the pandemic but then effectively doing the job during the pandemic has been one of the best learning opportunities within the uh, the corporation to date why was i offered the opportunity Uh, first and foremost to drive change uh, Mm -hmm. change in the procurement organization the way we work in the way we add uh, new capability from sustainability to risk management to market intelligence, data analytics. And these are all topics that obviously with the pandemic and the uh, supply chain shortages and difficulties became a very hot topic, but we had already a plan before that. We dive into and we are learning and developing and changing the organization through those um, different areas as we speak. So my assignment was really that to drive big change. And I have to say that it's not been easy, (laughs) but it's been fantastic uh, in terms of a journey in these two uh, last years.
1: In terms of challenges, I would assume questions around diversity and inclusion come up, but I would also assume questions around climate and circularity. Those issues must also come up. What What are the big challenges you're looking at?
0: DAO as an organization has made bold commitment to reach carbon uh, neutrality by 2050. But already by 2030, we have uh, some ambition goals of reduction of our carbon footprint. But traditionally, DAO had already, you know, in the year 2000, laid out the 2015-2020 sustainability goal. So we live and breathe sustainability because it's our license to operate and because it's the right things to do for the world we live in. From a supply chain point of view, we are driving and writing the book of Scope 3, which means not only we, but we with all our suppliers and partners are uh, working daily in setting up target and devising strategy on how to reduce the carbon footprint whenever we move any products around the world. That requires a lot of collaboration, a lot of relationship building, a lot of sharing beyond the walls of our own corporations. Um, One of the key goals is that of driving the scope three carbon footprint reduction for the entire supply chain and logistics organization not only ours, but also those of our suppliers.
1: Scope 3 is really tough, but perhaps could you just define for all of our listeners what is Scope 1, what is Scope
0: 2, and what is Scope 3,
1: just so we're all looking at it the same way?
0: Scope one is really targeting and reducing the carbon footprint of the manufacturing um, and operation that each uh, company has. Scope two looks after how do we do that with our customers and scope three is how do you look at the back end from an E-to-E perspective, from an end-to-end perspective how do you make sure that throughout the value chain uh, which we operate we really drive for neutrality and the lower you go in the scope, if you want Scope one scope two is within the fence <laughs> of where you operate as a company. Scope three is uh, well beyond and touches everything that an organization is exposed to from an operational point of view outside the fence, uh, the playground where the company operates.
1: That sounds like exploding complexity. <laughs> yes, it is. In your posting for the ETH Circle, you wrote about five principles that I thought really resonated Believe in yourself, your vision, your dreams. Never settle for the obvious or the easy choice. Growth and opportunity do not arise out of comfortable situations or get out of that comfort zone. Be ready to explore less obvious paths and have the courage to embrace uncertainty. I thought these were just fabulous ideas and principles and
0: just wondered how did you, how did you come up to articulate them? I did not come up with the principle. Looking back at what I've done so far, I think this has been a pattern in my life, if you want. Because every time I I I change a job or take a decision or move somewhere, I realized that I was always open to the unknown and actually the unknown was very, very compelling to me. And that's why driving change, being in in an environment that changes constantly is what makes me thrive. What it means, it means that, you know, it allows in time, in tough times, in times of crisis, it allows to develop maybe resilience as a a key skill to to continue to allow people to thrive. And I have to say, during these last two years of the pandemic, it has been proven quite quite helpful as a skill set that I had developed consciously or unconsciously throughout my life and my and my career. And I think, you know, we probably never stop developing the skill of being resilient, but we have to actually be ready for it because it doesn't come for free. It comes only um, if we can embrace that uncertainty and not fighting it, but really learn how to, to cope with it. But for me, it's exciting. It's, what, what is frightening for other people in time of uncertainty, for me, is exciting. That, um,
1: that concept of resilience does seem to have a lot of resonance, especially in these last few years. If you were to speak with young women who are just at that stage you were when you were at the University of Palermo and thinking about what to do next. What would be your advice if someone, a young woman, was
0: considering pursuing a career in in STEM today? First and foremost, I would be very happy <laughs> to, <laughs> to meet girls that want to go into STEM. I'm a strong advocate of, of that choice. I would only encourage to um, to embrace it, to, to step in, dive in. Go somewhere else where they uh, they are familiar with, because that opens up their mind. But I would say, you know, follow always your instinct. That's a helped me a lot. Your wishes, obviously, but your instinct your and your wishes are very well connected. But be curious. Be curious and be open. I found myself, you know, all the choices I made in life is because I wanted them, because I seek them. It's not because somebody told me I should do it. I've actually been doing quite the opposite of what people have recommended, which has turned out to be OK for me. But I would say, you know, explore, be ready to explore. Don't be afraid about exploring. And one thing which I think I did not do enough of at the beginning, ask for help. Don't pretend that you have to do it all on your own. It's okay to ask for help. It's actually helpful. <laughs> it's useful. And when you look back and this concept of having the courage to ask
1: for help, the courage to look at this uncertainty, how does ETH
0: play a role in what you do today? It is, I mean, ETH has given me a such solid ground. Um, I think I realized it when I left ETH. While I was at ETH, I was constantly challenged in a good way. Mm -hmm. And it felt unsettling. But once I left ETH and entered the corporate world, only then I realized how much of a solid uh, uh, luggage (laughs) or a solid ground ETH had had actually given me. And and maybe that's natural. I don't know if that's, that's the case for everyone, but at least that was for me. And maybe it was also not me realizing it but people are pointing that out it gave me a methodology on on how to approach complexity or now simplifying complexity i mean this has been extremely helpful in all the jobs i've done there is a lot of complexity out there and if there's one thing that eth teaches you and and give you the the opportunity to learn is really how to rationalize, approach problems, trying to simplify them and then uh, thrive for, for a collaborative uh, solution for it. That's very powerful. Having walked down along the Limat on
1: that day in June, in whatever, 1999, what is your favorite place today to have
0: a cup of coffee in Zurich? It's the uh, the Café Odeon. It was the end <laughs> of that <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> walk. Yeah. There is actually where I stopped. I had a coffee. I was like... Wow, that's nice. And when you were a little
1: girl, growing up in Sicily, what was it you wanted to be?
0: I wanted to be uh, able to have to see the world and to have friends everywhere in the world. That was my dream. Uh-huh. And there was another idea back in my head that I wanted to become a doctor. But back then, was a medical doctor. Growing up, I realized that that was not for me at all. (laughs) I became a doctor of a different kind that worked out. And uh, I can proudly say and happily say that I have friends in quite a few countries in the world. So to date, I can say that I have reached the wishes or the dreams that I had as a small child. And I'm very happy about that. That is just wonderful.
1: Thank you, Margarita. Thank you for your conversation. And thank you for your insights. Thank you, Susan. I'm Susan Kish, host of the We Are ETH podcast series. Please subscribe to this podcast and join us wherever you listen. And if you have a moment, give us a good rating on Spotify or Apple if you enjoyed today's conversation. I'd like to thank our producers at ETH Circle and Ellie Media. And thank you, our listeners, for joining us.